0: everybody welcome to this week's podcast no special announcements or anything so let's jump right into it first up isn't quite retro but microsoft has just added the option on some backward compatibility games to toggle the auto hdr and frame per second boost for each game and it seems like kind of a minor thing and some people might even think well why would you even want to toggle it but the reason i wanted to mention it and do a post about it was kind of the opposite of all of that The fact that Microsoft is giving you this much control over previous games and putting this much effort into backward compatibility is pretty awesome, and I don't think any company in the history of gaming has gone this far. You could argue that Nintendo with the handhelds did a pretty good job of that that spanned quite a long time, but I think Microsoft might actually have them beat with all of this stuff. I don't have too much experience with the new Xbox, but I did get to see Panzer Dragoon, the original Xbox game, on it, and it looked absolutely absolutely amazing. You would have never guessed this was an original Xbox game. So uh, while this definitely applies more to the the later Xbox games, it's still a pretty awesome thing. And if you'd like more information on the frame per second boost and all of the different game analysis from uh, how it runs on older versions of the Xbox to the newest, definitely check out uh, Digital Foundry's video on it. But overall, I'm just really impressed with the amount of effort put into backward compatibility, and it's making the new Xbox, as long as your games are compatible, a really viable way to play them. The only thing I wish they would add is if you have a developer account, I really think you should be able to turn on like a beta mode, so you could just play any of the original games, even if they're not officially supported. With the caveat of this might not work at all. You might take the time to load the game to the drive, and it'll just crash on boot. But I do wish that they would give people the option to at least try, and maybe have community submitted uh, reports on what works and what doesn't. Um, you know, maybe even allow some control over how the games are being processed so that you could just have a bunch of toggles and let the community figure out what toggles are required to make certain, certain games work. I don't know. I'm kind of just talking out of nowhere, but I feel like there's something that could be done. But anyway, either, either way, I still think it's a really positive thing and wanted to talk about it. Unfortunately, one of the fears my fellow retro hardware nerds have had for a while is starting to come true. It looks like some versions of Star Fox or Star Wing have a capacitor inside that's starting to leak. So just a bit of a backstory on this, all electronic components, pretty much all of them, have some form of capacitors in them, and they'll all die at some point. However, some capacitors just have the electrolytic fluid inside dry up and die, which essentially means that your components stop working and you need to replace them. Not the end of the world, because you could just replace the caps if you know what you're doing. However, certain other capacitors actually have the fluid leak out, which corrodes the board to the point where if you don't fix it quickly enough, it would destroy the board to the point where it's unfixable. So this is something that we've run into a lot with consoles, especially the original Xbox, the Game Gear, the Duo systems, and the Express systems. But it's not something that we've seen creep up a lot in cartridges yet. So with this finding, um, it really seems like it's almost getting to the point where we should start popping open our cartridges. Probably at least start with the most rare and expensive ones just to make sure, but then go through them to make sure that there's no signs of capacitor leakage. Um, Specifically, the ones for Star Fox Star Wing that you need to worry about are the ones with the glob tops. So for anybody listening audio only, it's the shorter PCB with the four square... I mean, glob top is really a good way to describe them anyway. So, the four glob tops on the back, uh, as opposed to the taller PCB that doesn't have anything on there, all of the chips are exposed and you could read what's on them. So, if you open yours up um, and you have a leaking capacitor, obviously replace it right away. If you have a glob top one, even if it's not leaking, it's probably a good idea to replace it just. To be preventative. Um, now, it's my personal opinion that I like to replace these surface mount capacitors with the exact originals. I do realize that it could be tricky for some people, though. Uh, if you've never worked on surface mount components, it's a pain. There's a few different methods you could use. Um, I'll, I'll leave that up to the experts to share those methods, but... Uh, If you're not comfortable with that and you don't think you could pull it off, you should be able to replace these with standard through hole. You just have to carefully bend the pins around um, and that way it's not... A factory look, but it absolutely does the trick of a good working capacitor being replaced. I have links to what uh, the crew that found this issue on the circuit board DE forums thinks is the original cap and a replacement for it. You're probably going to want to just look at whatever normal parts dealer you go through, DigiKey, Mauser, whatever, and find ones that are the exact specs just to make it easier. Uh, Also, um, Danielle and Vanessa had posted a list of all of the different models of the uh, Super Nintendo cartridge boards that have capacitors on them. So if it's easier for you to reference one of these, maybe look up you know one of these board numbers and see what games uh, you know, what games have it and then you could look up which is which, that might be an easier way, especially if' you're, uh, if your collection's in storage or if you have it all up on a wall where it's not easy to go through all of them and, and get to each one. I think it's probably easier for most people that don't have thousands of games to just open each one and do a visual inspection, but whatever, it's all up to you. Uh, I do hope that maybe um, other people like. Voltar or any of the ones that do any of the youtubers that do soldering videos would take the time to make a detailed video on this, including what's the cheapest equipment that you could use to replace this what's the best equipment like the um, the expensive high end soldering tweezers. I bought the cheap ones and they're useless. I might as well have just gotten two soldering irons to use side by side, but uh, yeah, I just hope somebody takes the time to go through and shows people show people what they need to do to replace them as well as how to find replacements. I think making a capacitor list is really intimidating if you've never done it before. Uh, And in the context of replacing one cap inside a cartridge, it's probably really easy to get started. You know, grab a cheap um, uh, micrometer. I don't know why I just drew a blank for that, and figure out the exact size that each one would need, how to read the values up off the top, and all that stuff. So who knows, maybe we'll see a video like that pop up soon. But for now, if you have Star Fox or Star Wing, absolutely uh, pop yours open. uh, Check it out, see if it's leaking or not, and see if you feel like you need to replace the capacitor. And hopefully we'll circle back around with this and have more info on other carts and other things soon. So here's something super awesome and super nerdy, and I absolutely love it. Back in December, Chris Covell and Bernard Baigot had found that Sega Master Systems have a blue channel on the RGB line that's non-linear. It doesn't really make sense as to why, and they were trying to speculate as to what could have caused this and now furtech has taken the time to decap an original vdp from a model 1 master system and find that the issue is built directly into the chip so whether it was done intentionally whether it was just a side effect of a manufacturing issue whether it was a design issue that's still to be uh, that's still something that's up for debate i guess but this is now, because of FurTech, proved that it's something that's happening directly in the chip and not something that's happening as a result of the circuit design on the outside, the board layout, etc. So So I, I absolutely love stuff like this. I love when we just go right past normal and go to super nerdy. I think this is absolutely amazing and it just shows the the dedication and the talents of everybody involved. I just think this stuff is so cool. And also decapping of chips could also lead to a million other things. Not just, uh, not just answering questions and some pretty cool artwork to be honest. I, I think this stuff looks really neat. But it could also be used for people that are doing any kind of reverse engineering project and want to verify how the exact original worked and the reasons why. So just a giant thank you to everybody involved Uh, this is very cool and we'll keep people updated on any new Sega Master System mods or anything like that Um, you know I don't think there's going to be a mod that fixes this per se but there's a bunch of cool stuff that's supposedly coming out for the Master System and I'm definitely looking forward to checking it out Last week, I released a video about the MemCard Pro, which is a memory card for the PlayStation One that saves everything on microSD and has Wi-Fi built in that allows for a bunch of cool features. You can set it up as multiple virtual memory cards, or if you're using an X Station, it'll create one folder per game, and it's really awesome. Um, I'll admit though, when I first got them in the mail and I opened it up and did, uh, the quick unboxing shots of it, I was wondering what I was going to do with it because I had already written a post about it. So I didn't want to just repeat myself with an unboxing video. And I distinctly thought like, how the heck am I going to make a video about a memory card? Is it going to be like a minute long and just show an unboxing and you know, a save game working on it? And then I actually started using it, and I was so impressed by the whole thing start to finish that I I just was like, okay, there's an easy way to make a video on this. Maybe it'll be five minutes long, and it's like a 12-minute long video that goes over the features. So I'm saying that not to mock it, but I'm saying that because I completely underestimated all of the stuff it could do and how important some of them were. Uh, And I really feel like a lot of other people may have as well because you just hear like, oh, a Wi-Fi micro SD memory card. Neat. Too expensive, and it is expensive. You know, I think it's around sixty dollars. So if you're just playing PS One games, go buy a cheap third-party five-dollar card off of Amazon. They're not great, but it'll get you started. And I definitely made that point at least once in the video, just to to tell people. Like, I'm not saying everyone with a PlayStation has to own this, but if you're a PS One power user, and if you are an X Station owner, you you probably should own one of these. Yes, there's other ways to back up your PS One saves. Yes, there's other stuff you could do. Of course, everybody in the comments had to remind me of all the different alternatives. That's not the point of the video, and that's not the point of the card. The point is, this is a memory card for your PlayStation that allows you to back up the save that you created with it, as well as backup saves from other memory cards, and there's a bunch of cool new features coming that have to do with the Wi-Fi and future firmware updates. So if you have a PlayStation 1, or I guess more importantly, want to play on original hardware with PlayStation 1 discs, so it does work on the PS2, but only for PS1 saves at the moment. Uh, So if you're in that scenario and you want a very versatile device, definitely take a look at it, especially if you're an X Station owner. Uh, If you don't really care about the PlayStation or you only have one or two games that you play on it, respectfully pick up one of those $5 ones and don't even worry about it until maybe someday you change your mind and you do become a big fan of the PlayStation. Either way, hopefully you enjoyed the video, though, uh, and it's definitely a cool thing that I'm glad I got. Retro Ralph has just started a new video series on his YouTube channel that's pretty much a reality TV show that's a cross between, like, Auction Hunters and Fixer Upper. The show's called Arcade Pickers, and if you're a retro gamer who likes reality TV shows of any kind, this is a must-watch. I think the production value is equal to or, or better than a lot of the reality TV I've seen, and on top of that, you really get a sense that they actually care about what they're talking about, and you know, a lot of reality TV could be classified that way, but a lot of it is also people that respectfully just want attention. And Ralph's already got an established YouTube channel. He doesn't need any extra attention. He's doing this because he loves doing it. And the videos are just really well done. I can't really add two more to that because I personally can't stand reality TV, which is why it took me two episodes to figure out how to to do a post on it. I mean, no disrespect to Ralph. I mean, no disrespect to anybody who likes reality TV. You know, I love heavy metal. Other people like country music. There's nothing wrong with either of us. We all just like what we like. So, uh, but the one things, the things that I just mentioned are indisputable. Whether you like reality TV or not, the production value is really amazing, especially for something that's just going on a YouTube channel and not on a major network. And they do very much seem to care about doing this and they seem to have a great time doing it. So, if you're into reality TV, I strongly recommend watching this and if not hey I don't know maybe give it a try anyway and maybe you'll end up liking it you never know you know with stuff like this that's free and one click away what are you gonna lose All of the build files for the OpenMVS have now been posted, officially making the OpenMVS open source. I have a page right on the website dedicated to it that has all of the files embedded, uh, both direct download from RetroRGB as well as links to the GitHub and Thingiverse and all of that stuff, uh, as well as basically all the info that's in the video but just transcribed to written form just to make it easier for people who might want to skim through that way or might want to search rather than having to wait for a whole video to pass. And uh, Tien, Avram, and I also did a live stream to celebrate it, and it was kind of funny. We we were a little silly. The opening was silly, but the whole thing about the audio in the one sixty one and one cart was not a joke. That was that was an honest, good mistake, if you will. So just to to quickly summarize, uh, I wanted everybody to hear how an original cart, one of the good ROM carts, the Neo SD and the Darksoft cart. Compared to the audio from a 161 and 1. And before I did this, I'd been playing a lot on my mini MVS, and it was a massive difference in audio. Any game that you played on the 161 and 1 was terrible. You could hear it crackling, the sound was awful. And when we plugged it into this, it wasn't that bad at all. And that's when T reminded me that that was part of the reason why he designed the audio circuit the way he did, so the 161-in-1 cart wouldn't be as awful. That wasn't, I swear, that was not like a bit or, a, a you know, some kind of weird skit or anything. That was 100% legit, and you could even see the embarrassment in my face in the video when I realized, oh, yeah, that's 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 why you spent so much time on that audio circuit. So that uh, while it was kind of funny to laugh at me, it was also a really great real... Real-world example of the quality that this kit has, and all the time that went into it. Because I do completely understand people who are just getting into this might want to spend sixty dollars on a one sixty-one and one with the good voltage. Get the newer ones that don't have the blow your console up voltage. I totally get it because while it's definitely a lower quality solution overall now you could just start gaming and then save up for original carts save up for a different rom cart or maybe that's all you need maybe you only want to play a couple of games and that's fine but i absolutely understand the appeal of those cheap 161 and ones and if you're using an open mvs at least now you know it's kind of uh it's safer on the ears if you will so for anybody that doesn't know about the OpenMVS, I'll give a little summary. If you're already familiar, you could just skip to the next section. But there's been a ton of ways to take MVS arcade boards and consolize them into what looks like or sort of resembles an AES for home use. And the reason people would want to do this at all isn't because of the AES console price, but the game prices. If you're a collector and you like to play original cartridges, the AES version of a game is usually so much more expensive than the MVS version. So it's a a pretty common thing to take the smaller boards like the MV1C, put them in a case, and, and use it that way. And there's been some great ones over the years. I I always mention the Omega because I tested that one personally. And while it wasn't cheap, it it was a great solution. You definitely got what you paid for. It did what it was supposed to do in 2011, and now it's still great for that. But if you are just a direct RGB person, you can get the upgrade board for it. There was a few others out there that I've heard nothing but good things about over the years. I haven't tested them personally, so I don't normally like to gush about stuff unless I have the proof behind it but but overall there was a lot of great solutions there was mostly garbage, and I'm you know I'm sorry to be negative, but it's the truth. There was mostly people because it had the name Neo Geo in it would sell thousand dollar fifteen hundred dollar Neo Geo consoleized solutions that some of them even looked really great on the outside, and then you opened it up and everything was glued together. The circuits were garbage. The, some of the circuits themselves weren't even safe to use unless you were plugging it directly into a CRT. So the Open MVS project was really designed to say. Hey, here's a way that you could consoleize your own or buy a decent quality consoleized version for a fair price. You don't have to spend a $1,000 on a Neo Geo console to just get good quality RGB out. Uh, if you want to print your own, and you want to build your own board, you could do it for incredibly cheap. Uh, If you want one that's already printed and really well painted, you could buy them from Avram. I think a lot of people didn't understand why the cost was so high for those. And once you see the quality of of the prints, I think people don't seem to realize how long it takes to print those and then how much work it takes to sand, prime, and paint those things to look the way they do. But, um, you know, all of these things, everything involving the OpenMVS has been from the spirit of helping modders helping consumers who just want to buy this or and just basically making the mvs be something that people can afford if they want to of course you could play it on the mister you could play it on a raspberry pi probably on your cell phone but this is really just designed for people who want original arcade boards who want to put them in a nice-looking case and want the ability to fork the project to do their own. There's already somebody working on integrating the Behar Brothers VGA output into one just to just to see what that would be like. And then in this case, you would only have to reprint the rear I.O. board to add a VGA port in it. There's just an infinite amount of things that could be done with this. Um, and I know at least one special edition fork being done, hopefully by the end of this year, that people might be interested in as well. Uh, premium product not you know not an uh, an affordable one (laughs) probably one for only crazy neo geo fans but overall it's a project designed to allow for all of that and now if you want to do it you can all of the files are up there for anybody who wants them to download if you want to see the thing in action check out the live stream please go in it with a smile knowing we're joking around and kidding we weren't seriously going nuts in the beginning like that we were just trying to make people laugh well i was i'll take the blame for that one but overall i'm very very proud to even have a small role in this project because i've always been a fan of the neo geo and i always wanted to to help squash some of the stigma of it only being like a a rich collector's console and and actually help people play it on original hardware who you know who want to do so Wrestling with Gaming just posted a mini documentary about why Electronic Arts had cartridges for the Sega Genesis that looked different than the standard Genesis carts. They were taller and had the yellow tab on the side. And while many of us probably already know the story, I was still really, really into the video. Um, The 3D graphics modeling Yehel did that alone was worth watching it. But as usual, his spin on the story was really entertaining and informative. And even if you already know the story, it's not that long a video. I definitely recommend checking it out. I was very impressed by it. And if anybody watching on video hasn't seen before, this is the basic difference between the two. Um, I didn't have any of my Electronic Arts cartridges handy, so I just took two pictures from Google Image and tried to size them the same. But at the very least, uh, you can get the idea of the size, shape, and yellow tab differences. So if you're a Sega fan or just a fan of cool documentaries, I would highly recommend this one. I recently posted an interview with James from Retro HQ and we talked about all of his different ROM cart projects, but also about his very storied career in the gaming industry that reaches all the way back to Argonaut Games. Uh, James has been a part of many different companies building game engines and working on games with them. Uh, And it was really cool to just hear some of the stories and the insider info to the point where I want to go back and do another podcast with him at some point talking specifically about those games. Uh, Maybe even playing them while we talk about them or something like that. But I had an absolute blast doing this one. Um, It's a bit long, but as always all of these podcast interview things that I do are available audio only as well as a video, so please listen to it whatever is the easiest way for you. It's always nice to see hits on YouTube videos, but at the end of the day, all I care about is that anybody is able to hear this stuff or see this stuff however you prefer. So, it's on every major podcast network, and it's also available for direct download. Uh, If you would rather just have an MP3 of it, the links are always there. And, of course, links to James and the uh, work that he does, the ROM carts, and even a very old review of the Neo Geo Pocket Game Drive are all in the post as well. So uh, if you're in the mood for a cool retro gaming podcast, definitely check out the interview with James and all of the links are right there for you. My Life in Gaming has just released the third installment in their documentary series called Analog Frontiers. This one's called Preservation and Replication, and they did a phenomenal job. They absolutely nailed it in every aspect. Uh, I was so impressed throughout the entire video. I thought this was such an excellent continuation of the series, and I can't possibly recommend it enough. The only thing I would say is unlike a lot of other documentaries that are out there, I think this one's best consumed after you've watched the first two. I think there's a lot of stuff out there that I talk about that you could jump in at any time and it's probably good enough, but I do feel like this is one of those that you would want to make sure that you've watched one and two beforehand. I don't think you need to go back and rewatch the first two again for a second time. I mean, if you want to, obviously no problem with that, Uh, but I wouldn't go into this one if this is the first thing you've ever seen of the analog frontier series i think they just nailed it though i mean all of the stuff they covered how they covered it the visual examples the way the script tied together this is really awesome work and uh, i'm so grateful that i get to be in a few snippets of it as well it's very very awesome so if you're a retro gaming fan or a documentary fan or just somebody that likes technical stuff definitely check out their series and after seeing this one i can't wait to see what they have in the next upcoming versions as well So, Hyperkin tried to do a thing again. Remember that cube that they released on April Fool's Day that was supposed to be a joke, and then they said it wasn't a joke, they were going to make it? Apparently it's still a joke, because it's a cube that's supposed to play Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games that doesn't play Game Boy Advance games and plays Game Boy games in the wrong aspect ratio. Now, it's hard for me to talk about Hyperkin at all because I usually get pretty passionate about it and I always give credit where credit's due. I think Hyperkin brings a lot of product to the mainstream that would have never been able to if it wasn't for them and they do a lot of good. And in fact, on my 2600 live stream, I unboxed and played two of their controllers live for the first time and loved them both. I absolutely gushed over them. And they, they do make a bunch of products that I think are great. I even really liked their NES controller until one day it just stopped working for me. Seriously, it's just there's nothing wrong. There's no wires pulled out. It just died for no reason. So weird, but you know it still was 20 bucks and lasted a couple of years. A lot of good things about Hyperkin. You know what Hyperkin can't make? Consoles. They're always garbage. It's always the same Nintendo on a chip or some bad software emulation or previously some stolen software emulation. And this one is was equally as bad. Now, they are at least putting some effort into this. Uh, They're using open source software and the project itself is open source which is nice but I think somebody forgot to explain to them what open source means. Open source doesn't mean that you could demand that the community fix everything that's wrong with it for you. It just means it's a project that other people are allowed to contribute to or fork. Somebody should have explained that to whoever is behind their Twitter account who basically praised Metal Jesus' video but said uh, we want to emphasize that the Retron Squared software Is open source, which we hope inspires the community to contribute to the Retron Squared project. Yeah, if you ever want to make somebody have zero desire to contribute to any project that you're on ever, release a broken product and then tell the community to fix it because it's open source. Uh, by the way, once again, this is my best effort of being polite. This is as good as I get with this. Um, if you would like a much more level-headed view of this Retron Squared, definitely check out Metal Jesus' video on it. He did a great job. Uh, He pointed out all the things that were wrong with it. And the only thing that we tend to disagree on is he laid out a couple of very good reasons why somebody might want to purchase this. Whereas my stance on it is don't ever support companies when they try to do crap like this. I don't think anybody should buy this at all. And in fact, I think you would probably want any other solution to play your Game Boy or Game Boy Advance games. I do agree that it's a cool looking box. So if you have the extra cash to spend and you want to buy a box that looks nice on your shelf, i probably recommend a few other raspberry pi cases that look even cooler but you know what this is an option so either way if you'd like a, a much more level-headed view and a, in a, an actual review and not just a uh very um a pained rant about this then please watch his video uh, and if not it's everything i said is true so eh. well that's it for this week As always, thanks so much to everybody that watches, listens, and plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to everybody who supports in any way. It's so appreciated, whether it's the monthly support services or whether you just go to RetroRGB.com forward slash support, click on an Amazon or eBay link, and buy something you were going to buy anyway for the same price but we get the fraction of a penny as an affiliate code as well any of those methods are so appreciated and they're what keeps this podcast all the behind the scenes research the posts the videos and everything else alive so thank you all so much and we'll see you next week